It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode four, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. We've got a great interview today with farmer John Peterson of Angelic Organics Farm in northern Illinois. I'll let John get into the specifics, but let me give a little bit of an introduction by saying that John runs an amazing farm just outside of Rockford, marketing a tremendous number of CSA shares into the Chicago market. This episode focuses on weed control at Angelic Organics, which despite John's love for machinery, really hinges on systems rather than a suite of fancy tools. We also delve into how Angelic Organics farms time, in addition to land, and how biodynamics has influenced Farmer John's approach to farming. And while we don't get into it in the show, I will mention that John was featured in the movie The Real Dirt on Farmer John, and that one year, I dressed up in overalls and a pink boa and went as Farmer John for Halloween. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Second Cut Media, helping tiny businesses build old-fashioned relationships using new fashion technologies. Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by Purple Pitchfork, providing tools and resources for farmers and food businesses to help them succeed in business, farming, and life. You can find and subscribe to the Farmer to Farmer podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, where your ratings and reviews are a critical part of moving our show up in the lists and the search results, which helps get the Farmer to Farmer podcast out to even more people. Thank you for joining me today, and let's get on to the show. John, I've given our listeners a little bit of an overview, uh, but I'd love to hear more about your farm in your own words and and your history there. Yeah, so uh, we have about 35 acres under production here and then another 35 acres in cover crops. But for the broader story, I've been on this farm for my whole life. I'm 65 now. And it was in conventional agriculture, in traditional agriculture, really, when I was growing up, dairy and poultry and hay and oats and corn. In fact, and this probably says a little bit uh, more about me, in the granary and corn crib where we ground our feed for the cattle and the chickens, this is, that's where I'm sitting right now. And it's been converted into office space. So um, I have a very strong feeling for uh, what we created in the past and how to work with it and to take it into the future. So I've worked a lot on the buildings on the farmstead here. <clears throat> in fact, on our website, uh, angeliciorganics.com, <clears throat> excuse me, you can find... Uh, a link called uh, Metamorphosis of the Peterson Farmstead. And you can see how I've spent a lot of time working with these buildings to transform them into contemporary uses. That would be office and social life and um, ideally some artistic and cultural life here. So the upstairs of the corn crib is a converted uh, year-round loft and a big part of the upstairs of our our dairy barn is uh, a loft where groups can meet. I think a farm needs to have a place uh, where people can meet because I think people are a really important part of the farm. And so back to my story, um, if you really are interested in, in more details, there's uh, a film called The Real Dirt on Farmer John that chronicles 50 years of this farm and my life. 
and you can get that on Amazon and I think Netflix. When we got out of dairy, I milked from when I was nine to 19 or 20 and my dad died and then we got out of dairy in the poultry and I grain farmed and I got into hogs and cattle and so forth. So I was quite conventional in my farming practices, but not that conventional here with the social life and the artistic activities. There are a lot of very interesting, creative people living on the farm during that time. And then the whole thing went down in the early 80s. But I'm bringing this up especially because I already had a, a kind of affinity for um, scale. I had been running seven or 800 acres of land, corn and beans, and we were finishing five or 600 heads of, uh, head of uh, hogs out a year here and sometimes some cattle. So when it all went down, and I had several years where I wasn't farming really, I was growing a few vegetables for my mother's stand, but uh, really I went into uh, much more of a creative mode then because I had the time writing and performing. And when I came back to start the farm up again, that would have been about 1990. Like I said, I already had some affinity for scale, like equipment. I loved equipment and, uh, you know, just a, a, a lot of production. That sort of draws me a lot of production. So now with these 35 acres, we have pretty close to 3,000 shareholders that we serve. Now, some of them are half share. So uh, we, we pack out about 2,200 boxes a week during the season. And we're able to do that consistently. We're able to pack out full boxes of quality uh, produce week after week. And I'd say that's because, well, once again, you go, gee, you might go, that's a lot of boxes. That's but, a lot of boxes. Yeah, but it's, like I say, it's just, it's just something, it's my affinity or my nature to, to want uh, that kind of scale. And uh, I sometimes say that businesses get big in order to get all the work done. You know, businesses aren't bad because they're big. They just have to differentiate in the different departments and be proceduralized and make everything happen that needs to happen. And so we've been able to do that in many parts of the farm more easily as we become bigger and then, then we become efficient. So, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's probably enough, uh, uh, backstory. So, oh no, here our market, our market is, um, mostly Chicago, which is about an hour and a half to two hours away, Chicago and suburbs, but we're getting more and more local people. We have about, 150 people who pick up here at the farm now and then in Rockford, which is 20 miles from here, we have maybe 150 shareholders. And, and, and I want to say too that, so we have some year-round staff here, have a couple people in the office, uh, and I have an assistant, and then um, my main facilities and machinery guy, uh, Primo, or Jesus, um, has been here 24 years now, and he works pretty much year-round, and he has a couple people who help him, and uh, one of those people has been with us for about 12 years, and they build 
and they maintain the facilities and they um, maintain the equipment and they run the equipment. And that's a really big part of how we're able to get so much done is they're very experienced, they're very good, they're very proactive. We have a couple of building projects going on here right now. We, the, the milk house attached to the main barn is, is, has been completely rebuilt. So uh, uh, we can have a interior staircase to the upstairs loft, which we call the community loft, and then there pretty far along in building a uh, farm, a heated farm repair shop, which we needed here for many years. But these guys just get the work done. I do not have to micromanage them. I do not have to look over their shoulders. So that's a really big element in how we're able to work on this scale. Well, and I think, I think that's a really important point, John, and you and I have talked about this before, the, this, this element of having machinery that works, uh, you know, having it so that when you go out to turn on a tractor, it actually, it starts and that that's the expectation. There's a policy uh, in the machinery uh, department, which is that the shop and the equipment are always ready for use. You don't get them ready when you need to use them. You don't clean up the shop when you need to use the shop. The shop is already clean. It's already organized, and the equipment is ready to go because when we got done with it the last time, any problems that it had are remedied then. They're remedied after the equipment is used and not remedied before the equipment is used. So uh, we, have a, we have quite a bit of old machinery but unless you actually have a mechanic who can really take care of it, like a system where you can really take care of it, it can be much more of a burden than a, uh, an asset. But I have an onion harvester, and it's probably 40 or 50 years old. We have a potato harvester, and we have a scat miner or carrot harvester. And these machines run pretty much like dreams because after we're done with them, sometimes uh, Primo or his assistant will just tear, tear the whole machine down because there's some bearings that are going out and it's leaking or whatever. And that will be completely restored well in advance of the next season. So when we go out there, it's interesting, like with an onion harvester, we, we go out there and harvest about uh, 20,000 pounds of onions in a half a day. Uh, you know, maybe something will break. We're not counting on that. I mean, we make a provision like, hey, maybe something will break. I mean, it's an old machine. But right. usually it doesn't. Or if it does, it's a very minor thing. So usually we can just count on, we think it'll take a half day. Maybe it'll take three quarters a day to get our whole onion crop in. 10 tons or maybe 11, maybe 12 tons this year. It's probably 12 tons. Now, you can't just pick up a machine uh, an old onion harvester and think that's the end of like your onion harvesting challenges. It's just that you take the challenges and you put them into that slot where you have the time, which is in between onion harvests. It's not during the onion harvest. So that's when you work on it. It's really different to be, to, to think about, about the maintenance on the machinery as something you do after you use it rather than something you do before you use it. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of, machines here. There's probably over a hundred if you include the machines in the 
the, the wash area, the packing area. And um, right now, I'm just thinking if you went out there, went out, and you wanted to use one, you'd probably be ready to go. <laughs> I love that feeling of preparedness. And I actually have that policy for all the buildings here, and it's not that easy to uphold. But I like every building to always be clean, every space, office space, the packing area. I want it all organized and orderly, always. So that's how I am. And, and that's, not, that and that's not just because you're anal. That's because that's what makes your farm work. Well, sure, it makes the farm work, and it, 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 it creates a feeling of order and of um, maybe I could say sovereignty, a feeling like this place reflects my values and it's it's reminding me of what I stand for which is order and beauty and the ability to get things done always to get things done on time I think that's our probably our biggest uh, strength here is being able to get things done on time I, I think farming it's, it's farming time not just farming land, you're in a relationship to time, and it really has to be impeccable when it comes to getting the crops in and out. It has to be impeccable. There's, there's, farming is not very forgiving. Some things are forgiving. You're a student, you get a, a, a you know, a, what do you call it, an extension on when you hand in your term paper. And there's all <laughs> kinds of things in life, right. like in, in the world where you can say, I'm not done. You're like, oh, okay, that's fine. You're not done. But farming isn't like that. Just get it done on time. Yeah, so, not a lot of forgiveness. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, our weed management program here. And I'm very excited to talk about it. So uh, unless there are any other no, questions you have about yeah. that. Well, I actually think that what, what you're just saying right now about timing and timeliness uh, and farming time, I think that's a perfect segue into weed control because in my experience, two things in my experience, one is that the weeds are the, the number one challenge that I see for organic vegetable farmers. The consistent control of weeds is is so important and is something that so many people, I don't feel like have really seen a good example of. Um, and it, it's a place that, that, that causes all kinds of trickle-down effects on the farm. When you don't control weeds, it creates, it creates a cascade of problems. And when you do control weeds, it creates a, a cascade that goes upwards. Um, and, and I do think it's all about timeliness. I mean, the, the weed control is one of those things, especially if you've got any kind of, of, uh, of imperfect weather, which is pretty much the definition of, of the weather in the Midwest is imperfect. Um, you're not able to to wait until tomorrow to get the weeds done. And when it's time to get the weeds done, you have to turn on the tractor and you have to get out there and do it. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I have weed phobia. I don't want weeds on my farm. And I'm going to go into our, uh, uh, I call it a labyrinth of systems or methods that we use here to control the weed. Actually, if you were to come here, or our listeners were to come here um, pretty much any time of the year uh, when the crops are in, they wouldn't find many weeds. So I'm going to tell you why, and I don't, I don't want to sound boastful here. I think it's quite an extraordinary claim to say 
well, we don't really have weeds, so weeds aren't really a problem on our farm. And um, but I'm gonna now I'm gonna tell you some of the approaches that we use so that weeds are not a problem on our farm. So one thing that I did, and like I say, I'm gonna be going in a lot of different directions here. It might be a little bit hard to follow uh, some of these things, but I wanna create as much of the construct for weed control as I can. Now, we have half our land in cover crops. And that's two years in, that's clover, now alfalfa, and Timothy, and um, oh, I tried a little bit of uh, tillage radishes in that mix. Uh, two years in, so that gives us, again, first of all, it gives us a different environment for the weeds, because the clover and the alfalfa will drown out a lot of weeds that want, that would otherwise be growing in our vegetable crops during that time. But um, what I did was I divided our, our crops up into three types, and they're called light feeders, medium feeders, and heavy feeders, but they're really misnamed. That's not really what they are, and, and I just had to call them something, but I didn't, I didn't know a term for them uh, to divide them up, to, to, for, for them uh, to be divided according to how I was really dividing them, which has to do with their sensitivity or their tendency to be overwhelmed with weeds. So one of my three divisions here, which I call the light feeders, like I say, it's not the right name. Uh, what we do is we put in four fields of crops the first year that are easy to weed. We have a no weed goes to seed policy in those four fields, and those four fields are um, spring broccoli, garlic, and the spring beets, onions, celery. Uh, they are all things, they're all crops that we are done with by early August. And we know what's going to go into those fields, into those fields the next year. And by the way, our fields are very consistent. And I, I, I'm going to say that we used to lay them all out with a tape measure. So the, the nine beds wide, six feet per bed, 500 uh, beds, 500 feet long or 520, depending on but generally we just say, let's just say 500 feet long. And we couldn't, we'd lay down with a tape measure and we'd flag the beds, but we really couldn't stay out, out of the growing part of the beds. It didn't matter how fabulous our tractor operator was. We just simply couldn't, we'd veer into those growing parts of the beds a little bit and it would cost us in yields but also you have compaction then and then you have problems with weeds so we ended up uh, about three years ago going to a an rtk system which is gps that creates a grid to the inch so we never drive on our beds on the growing part of our beds we're always driving uh on these tracks exactly located in between the beds 
So that's a hard thing. Um, you know, that's a, it's kind of a challenge to get into that because you need the right kind of equipment. You need the right kind of tractor if you're really going to be um, lim- uh, limiting yourself to one inch of sway as you go down that 500-foot bed. But so what we do is these four fields that are empty by early August, we put compost on them. Um, and then we, uh, we subsoil them and we do this in an exact way. So everything's on this grid and then we, uh, put in peas and oats. So we've, or well, peas now, we don't put in oats anymore. We'll put in peas by, well, it always happens between the 15th of August and the, the end of August. Um, okay. this year we went over in a few fields by two days and terrible rains and, in late August, but almost always we get these peas in in late August, and that sort of recreates an environment there where um, you know whatever weeds want to be flourishing in there. Now they're being gobbled up or they're being suffocated by the peas. So, uh, but but the the thing that I I want to point out is that the four fields that follow the broccoli, garlic. Um, beets and onions and so forth where we have the completely no weed can go to seed in these four fields well the fields that follow them the next year are the salad greens the baby greens and the carrots and radishes and turnips and spinach those are those are crops that can easily be overcome by weeds so we are actually weeding those crops the year before right right so when we so that's one thing that that we're doing we're weeding our carrots i mean i've seen i've I've had to tear up carrots because they were too weedy and i've spent seven hundred dollars a bed on weeding carrots because they were overwhelmed with weeds and then you go well is it worth it should we tear them up is it going to be too late to get a crop if we tear them up and and i don't want to ever be there again so imagine that no weed seeds dropped there in that field, uh, that carrot field, the, the year before. And then we go in there and we put in the peas. And then when we go in in the, in the spring. Because those peas winter kill, right? Those yeah, are- they winter kill. And, and we go in there in the spring and... And those beds are already configured. Now, like I say, we used to do it with flags, and so we would still be on those beds in an exact, I mean, a precise way, an approximate way, let me say. But now we're more exact in how we're on those beds because of our RTK system. And we have already subsoiled this ground the fall before, or the, you know, the summer before when we put in the peas. So all these beds are already subsoiled, like uh, 14, 16 inches deep. And then uh, we can go in there and we can just stale seed bed. We actually don't have to even deep till. We don't have to deep till for these crops. We go in there and I don't think stale seed bed is, is the exact, is the exact uh, right term for this, but we go in with our rotavator and um, I know some people are down on rotavators, but that's what we use because they're very persuasive and they'll take out any weed that's there and we go very shallow and 
and we, you've got and you've got a rototiller that's got the it's got the basket on the back of it, right? Yeah. To, to really precise. Yeah. I mean, when you when you say you're controlling the depth on that rototiller and going really shallow, you're talking probably two three inches. Yeah. Okay, and and that roller that that makes such that makes such a difference in being able to adjust the depth on yeah. of, of your tillage. Yeah, one of the problems with the rotavator is we use it for a lot of different things, and I wanted to have a rotavator that's dedicated just to uh, stale seed bedding because then you could have the what are they called the L blades instead of the slope blades. I think those are called the C right. blades. But you could have completely flat profile. But our profile is kind of scalloped, so we have to get. The top of that scallop, from the way those blades are shaped, um, has to be one inch below the surface of the bed. And so you end up being a little bit deeper at the bottom of your scallop than you want to be. You'd like to be at one inch or one and a half inches for your stale seed bedding. Right. But, but anyway, um, so we'll go in there, and, and, and the, the field is already clean. And we will go in there, like, say, um, for the fall carrots, we'll go in there and scale seed bed maybe five times before we plant them. We see them in late May. So we get uh, some weeds coming up, get a flush of weeds, and uh, usually you get plenty of rain to get that flush of weeds in the spring. Then we go in. As soon as it dries up, we tear them up, get some more rain, or maybe we irrigate if it's dry. We would irrigate. We don't. We would overhead irrigate a field if we if it was really dry and we're going. Hey, we're not getting the flushes of weeds. But you don't get a lot of weeds. But you do. You still get weeds. I don't know how they manage to do that. But even if you have no weeds go to seed the year before, there's still a bank of weeds there. And we still seed bed about every five days before we put in that crop that's sensitive to weeds. So, like I say, with the fall carrots, that's a lot of time there. Lots, it's a lot of stale seed bedding. And our fall carrots, we usually walk maybe twice. And I'd say our weeding bill in the fall carrots has dropped, well, like I say, it might have been over $700 a bed sometimes, maybe a 1000 a bed by the time each weeding was taken into account and um, I'd say now we're probably down to under $100 a bed for weeding our fall kids. They're just usually very, very few weeds. You just drop these carrot seeds in, they come up and you marvel at how few weeds there are. So that's one way that we deal with the weeds. I also want to say that our subsoiler has very, very, very narrow points. And let me say about the subsoiler, it's a three-shank subsoiler, and the rows are on 18 inches. So that's what our beds are. The growing part of our bed, the rows are 36 inches apart, but then you could have three rows at 18 inches apart. You can have five rows at... at, uh, nine inches apart. That subsoiler, it doesn't have as much lift as I would like, but it doesn't turn the soil. You know, you can, you can have some, you can have subsoiling that's very aggressive and you're bringing up things from down below up to the surface and you're really disturbing the soil profile. 
You don't want to do that with your your weeds. You want to keep them and keep vanquishing them in the top few inches. Right. So that's another uh, element. And I'm actually realizing now that if we really need to, we can go in and subsoil. I've, I've been avoiding it for a long time, but we can go in the spring and subsoil because we're not going to disturb that upper profile very much. But really, in early spring, the ground, we have a clay a, a, a clay ground, and we can't, we don't like to till it very deep because it can dry up at, on the surface, can dry out the top two or three inches and be pretty slimy underneath that. But so you can just work with the top two or three inches, then you're not um, generating a, a weed, a colony of weeds. And also you can do that because um, in our case, we have the RPK and so we're not we're not compacting the soil because we're just staying in our, our wheel tracks. So, and John, I, and part of why, I mean, you're talking about making, I forget how many, how many use, how many passes you said you might be making to flush the weeds on your fall carrots. But if you're, if you're talking going through every five to seven days, I mean, you're, you're through there and through there and through there uh, before you get those carrots planted. Part of why you're able to rototill that so much without really destroying the soil is because you've had this two years of soil building happening, right? When you had the cover crops in there, this is not something you'd really want to do if you were just growing carrots on carrots on carrots without having that, without having that, that building of your soil biology in between. Oh, it'd probably be too destructive. Yeah. Um, I want to say that we've tried other methods. We've tried, uh, a time weeder for the scale. See, I've, I've ground them. It's, it's too, um, prone to caking and crusting, and so that time weeder wouldn't pull out any weeds that had much of a start. And then we've tried uh, a basket weeder, but our, our soil won't really work with a basket weeder except right when it's in a, a, a narrow a, a time frame of a few hours in between um, being too wet and being too dry. And so you can't design your operation around that little time frame. I mean, there's so many crops that were continually direct seeding. Uh, we use the rotavator. And now I'm going to talk about a few other things here that um, are very pertinent to weed control. But that's that's one thing. Now, um, those fields that are really sensitive to weeds, that can be easily overwhelmed by weeds, that group of fields called the light feeders are in... The closest view, they're the, they're the easiest to see from the farmstead. I can see them along the, our driveway. We have a, a quarter mile driveway down the farmstead. I live uh, with my lovely wife, Heidi, at the other end of the driveway in a um, old limestone schoolhouse. But anyway, the, between the farmstead and that schoolhouse are these fields where we have the policy that no weeds can go to seed. And so that's part of the strategy is have those fields that are the most critical from a weeding standpoint, as visible, as as embedded in your consciousness as possible. So when you walk from say the one barn to the office or whatever, and you gaze out at these fields, and you will see if weeds are becoming a problem. They're just there and very present. And and so that's another part of that strategy. I'm going to tell you uh, several more things now. So, um, my guys, uh, Primo and Pollo, that's 
the names they go by. It's uh, Jesus and um, Eduardo. They uh, don't like weeds either. And they, they will go out in the field. So we have a G cultivator. It's a very simple little cultivator. We don't mess around that much with the time stations. We go down the bed. So it's a shovel cultivator, but the shovels are very narrow, but they do the job. We go down the bed one way, hugging it to the right. We come back, hugging it to the left, because all these different crops, they have so many different profiles, so we don't try to adjust the shovels so precisely every time and then do three beds and then go to another crop with another profile. But really, I almost never tell them to go cultivate because they're already doing it. I come down in the morning, they're already out there doing it. Now, when do we do it? Well, we usually do it before we see any weeds. <laughs> we think that if we see the weeds, it's kind of late to be cultivating. You see that little blush of little film of green there? That's a little bit late. By our standards, cultivate before you see the weeds. Now, there are people who think that's crazy, especially these people who haven't been around um, farming much and weeds much. They, I mean, we've even had people here who have said, why would you pull these weeds when they're so little? Why don't you pull them when they really start to become a threat? Then you're really <laughs> right. getting something done. Like they should be at least five inches tall. And no, that's not how we do things. And then, so they'll go out and they'll cultivate, but I have many, many, many different shovel cultivators. So we have the G and then we have a cultivator just for our wheel tracks because they get very compacted and I don't want to wrestle with wheel track cultivating when we're doing this fine work of controlling weeds in the row. And so we have a great shovel cultivator that just weeds wheel tracks. And every so often, every week or 10 days, we'll go out and get all the weeds out of our wheel tracks with that cultivator. We have, and then we have a one row for our squash. We have a two row uh, rear mounted. We also, we have a camera that uh, sits on the back of the tractor so we can actually see how we're doing so we don't have to turn around um, and look behind us. I, I'm not crazy about rear mount cultivators, but when you have a camera, it helps. And when you have the GPS, it helps because you're much more consistent in where you are in relation to those rows. We have a three-row rear mount cultivator, and then we have a, um, what's that called, a Reggie Weaver. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the, one of those ones that the, the you have somebody riding on it, and they yeah. it's got the little spinning baskets that are down on the ground. Yeah, and yeah. we call it the power wiggle hole. And two people sit there, and then one person runs the tractor, and you can have people running that thing a half a day, and they don't really get tired. And uh, and so it's not like being out there with a hole. And that, that weeder will do three rows. It'll do... Um, it does a great job on crops that are spaced a foot or more apart. Um, like more would be our corn or our broccoli or our cabbage. Um, it does a pretty good job with crops that are like eight inches apart, but you can't go in and out. The amazing thing about that weeder is that when your crops are spaced further apart, you can go right in between the plants and get those weeds out or cover the weeds up. That's another thing we do. I mean, you don't have to pull them out of the ground. You can just cover up weeds. Especially when they're small. Yeah, when they're small like that, you can do do that. 
And so those those crop though, uh, it it won't go in and out of the onion crop. It's too close to, together. So anyway, you can get very close to the edge of the row, and then you have to clean the rest up with your uh, your hand hose. Now, um, so uh, a couple other things that we do sometimes we'll do the scales or not the scale seed bedding. I think it's called blind cultivating it's when you it's like with a rotary hole or time weeder on the back right of the implement and and it it won't take out the deeply rooted uh plants which ideally is your crops but it will take out the shallow rooted uh weeds that are just coming along and that can take out 85 or 90 percent of the weeds that are right inside your row right in the lineup of your row but the problem is we use soil blocks and those soil blocks are too, they're, they, they're too resistant. They're not malleable. They're not pliable. And they're pretty big. They've got a large profile at the top of the soil too. Yeah. Yeah. And you can pull them out. So we don't use that very much, even though I really love that because I used to use a rotary hole a lot. I love rotary holes and the time weeder, but um, we don't really use it very much and we don't actually need to because, um, we, you know, we have all these other systems in place. So I want to say a few other things. So we have... John, let me interrupt you for a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be right back to the interview. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is all, is sponsored by Second Cup Media, a website design and marketing firm run by Christy Waits and Tom Ponick. They've worked in the technology field for nearly 20 years and love sharing their knowledge and expertise with tiny business owners, including farmers. Their business operates on two fundamental principles, simple plus personal. A key part of building a tiny business in today's big world is knowing how to cultivate strong and lasting relationships with customers and understanding the value of a good conversation. Building a tiny business isn't all about balance sheets and bookkeeping. It's about keeping people engaged long enough for that second cup. The world is changing, the economy is changing, businesses are changing, but most importantly, people are changing. Bigger, better, and faster is no longer sustainable. But tiny is. Tiny businesses are built on a solid foundation of slow growth, strong relationships, and manageable tasks. And Second Cup Media can help. www.secondcupmedia.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by Purple Pitchfork, where Chris Blanchard, that's me, draws on over 25 years in the organic farming business to provide down to earth solutions to the real challenges faced by farmers, food businesses, and nonprofit organizations. I've provided help to beginning and experienced farmers around North America with business planning, individual farm assessments, marketing strategies, management training, packing house design, and ongoing individual and team coaching. With experience on farms from one half to 100 acres, I bring the knowledge and approaches you need to improve your farm, your business, and your life. I don't promise easy, and I don't promise that you'll always like what you hear, but I do have a record of creating real results on real farms. www.purplepitchfork.com These other three, two sections that we have, again, they really are designed very much around their weed nature, so their weed uh, susceptibility nature. So we have one section where half the fields are in plastic. Well, we'll go in and weed the, the holes in the, around the crops once or twice uh, so we don't have weeds growing in those holes. And then we mow uh, in between those beds of plastic. So we have a nice carpet of green there that we can put our crates on or put our tomatoes on when we're um, 
uh, you know, when they're harvesting the tomatoes. Right. So uh, that works out well for us. The plastic, of course, that's a, a very clear-cut way to control the weeds. And then what follows those crops of plastic, and by the way, notice, I mean, I didn't want to say, well, we have a whole quadrant uh, dedicated to plastic or plastic culture. It just The term just jars me, so we just call that the um, medium feeders. But what follows them in the circuit is the squash and the um, brassicas, the fall brassicas, the broccoli and Brussels sprouts and, and cauliflower and cabbage. And those are very easy to control the weeds in. Squash is so easy. You're a one-row cultivator, and you can, you can throw the soil in between the squash uh, plants before they start to vine. You go in with your power wiggle hole. It'll do one row. It'll do a middle row. you got to reconfigure it a little bit. But we do almost zero hand-hoeing in our – we have four – fields of squash. We almost never touch them with a hand hole and we're able to have them almost immaculate, almost impeccable, in, impeccably clean with just these two systems, the power wiggle hole and then um, the the G cultivator. Some cultivator will set up for one row. So that's that whole quadrant that where we don't I know it sounds crazy to say we don't have weeds, but we really don't just don't see them there. Okay. And then the third quadrant is five fields of sweet corn and four fields of potatoes that follow the sweet corn in a rotation. And in the sweet corn, so we, we put two seeds per uh, lot. So uh, we, we um, transplant our sweet corn. We started in the greenhouse so we can always count on getting a sweet corn crop. Extremely consistent stands that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they look a little Photoshop, truly. And, uh, <laughs> and we um, can use the power wiggle hole on the sweet corn because it's 16 inches apart. And sometimes we'll have weeds in the sweet corn. I mean, it just depends. It, 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 that's the place where I think we could be a little bit better. But we'll, we'll, we'll get through that at least once with the power wiggle hole. And sometimes we'll go in there and clean it up with hand holes. But I want to say about this uh, weeding, weed control, now with the soil blocks, we can hold on to things longer in the greenhouse. We can let them get bigger in the greenhouse than if we had another transplant system where, you know, they'd run out of nutrients out of, out of uh, block space earlier. And so they'd start to you know, the grade and quality, but like our corn, we can get our sweet corn up to about say six or eight inches before we transplant it. Then it has a head start on the weed. So we go in, we work that ground up, we put in our corn and it's already, it's almost like we've already been through it twice weeding it. You know, if you were going to go in and seed it in the field, you would have to control those weeds from the very beginning. It'd be very difficult. But suddenly you got a field of corn that's eight inches high, and then it's going to grow, outgrow any weeds. But also, you're going to have to weed it a lot less before it starts to shade the rows. And you know, I don't hear people. I don't. I, I know when I was growing up, shading the rows was an important 
time of the crops genesis because that meant that the sun couldn't get through to the weeds and uh, the weeds would just go dormant. The ones that were already growing, they'd be in the shade. Right. And um, here's another thing I want to bring up here. I don't know if I've ever met anyone on this farm who's ever heard the term lay-by. Are you familiar with the term lay-by, Chris? I'm not. Yeah, it just means your last cultivation. And so when I was little, uh, that was a term that the family used, that the other farm families used. So it's in lay-by. Okay, this is the lay-by cultivation. It's the last one. And now in the potatoes, which follow the corn, and it's pretty easy to get, um, uh, well, basically wheat-free potatoes, and this is what we do. So we'll hill them. I mean, they're hilled when we, when we uh, plant them with our uh, John Deere uh, 2-0 planter. So they're hilled. And then we wait until they're just breaking through, and then the potatoes are vines or plants are just breaking through on the surface, and then we throw another big hill over the top of it. Just, so bur- we, just bury the potatoes. Yes, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're just starting to emerge. We bury them. And it covers up all the weeds that are growing in those hills. It, they're done. They're, they're, that, that flush of weeds is done. And then we uh, wait till they poke through again. And then we go through with the time weeder. And what we do when we put on that hill over the, the, the first hill that we make and bury all the weeds, we make it very, very high. Like try to get it three inches above the, the hill we've already made, but it's, it's hard to do that. And we we have a disc uh, a disc hiller that does this, and we go through and loosen the soil up first with two-row cultivator, and then we throw this loose soil up over the hill. And then when those potatoes start to peek through this taller hill, we go through with our time reader, and we knock down the top of that hill. And, and so about the, the crown of that hill, about the, th- the top third of that hill, we obliterate and it kills all the weeds again. And it, you know, it rests the potatoes up a little bit, but they, they can handle it. And so you have a second very effective weeding on the crown of that hill. And then we go through with the hiller again and we throw dirt on the sides. We can no longer get up over the top of the hill, but we can throw it up on the sides of the hill where the time reader didn't reach. And so that's another right. mechanical cultivation that is really, really thorough. And if you do all of these things at the right time, you will have hardly any hand weeding to do. You might have to go through it once. It's pretty fast. Maybe a second. I call it vanity weeding because I don't like to see those few stray weeds out in the field. I don't. So we'll, you know, I call it. I say, okay, now we're going to do the vanity weeding. We're going to go out and get all those stray weeds that are out there. So that's, uh, I know I'm overlooking some things here in how we control weeds, but, um, uh, See, when I was growing up, there's always a problem, weeds. And then when the chemicals, there's it, it always a concern. The family's always talking about it. My dad is always talking about it. When the chemicals came in, it just seemed like such a blessing, uh, the 2,4-D and then the atrazine. And it was a problem that 
kind of went away for a while. But this uh, preoccupation with clean fields, I inherited, and you can tell from what I've been saying here, uh, I uh, <laughs> I'm preoccupied with it. But the thing is, you can be preoccupied with preventing the weeds, or you can be preoccupied with all the damage the weeds are doing. You choose. Like you're going to put a lot of energy into one or the other. You're either going to put a lot of energy into being proactive and eliminating the weeds, or you're going to put a lot of energy into apologizing to your shareholders because your box isn't very plentiful, or, um, uh, you know, just the, the assault of looking out on your fields and seeing that they've been overcome with weeds it's it's quite an emotional um uh, encounter at least it is for me so one way or the other the the weeds are going to be impacting your life either you have them impacts your life one way you don't have them that impacts your life another way i think it's interesting when you talk about this john because the it's really clear that that just doing the job isn't isn't enough uh, when it comes to the weed control. You know, I you talk about um, you know cultivating up one side and down the other of a row, and you know a lot of times when I when I work with beginning farmers, they'll say you know things like, well, I I weeded that, I you know we, we cultivated that, and it's like no 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 the weeds are still there, and and I'm not and I'm and I'm not even just talking about beginning farmers. I mean I had a, I had a very experienced farm that I was working with, and yeah, they would send their crew out to weed and 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 you'd look at what they had done, and they had done exactly what you said. They'd pulled all the five inch weeds, but they left all the one inch weeds. It's like, you know, and, and it's like, there's, there's something missing. There's some sort of a disconnect there because it, it's not just about going out in the field and waving your hoe around in the air or just, or, or going out and, and driving down the road. But you talk about that importance of getting that precision, getting things right, you know, and doing whatever it takes to, to get it right on your farm. You've got a couple of specialized pieces of equipment that you're using to do this. You've got a, um, I mean the, the Reggie weeder, although I think that's a pretty common tool. You've got the you've got the uh the the navigation system the gps system that's something that i don't see a lot of vegetable farmers using in fact i'm not sure that i've heard of anybody else using that um but you're not looking at a bunch of really special cultivators you're not looking at a bunch of of silver bullet solutions to your weed control here it really is just a matter of you guys are getting out and getting the weed control done it's funny yeah i i look at these highly specialized weeding systems i can't afford them but there are some astounding ones out there that are uh, laser guided um but um yeah it's about uh being ready it's about having the the, the people to have okay so look at what what has to happen here you gotta have people who can run this equipment you can go out there and weed the two rows or the three rows or the one row we're not really set up to do five rows. We, we do have things in five rows, but like usually <sighs> our beds are clean. So we don't, if we have something in five rows, we, it probably won't, it won't be engulfed in weeds. There might be some weeds we might just handle it. But I'm, I'm thinking now too, uh, yeah, so you know, the, the equipment has to be ready to go. You got to have the people who can run the equipment. They, they need to have that incentive uh, to just, they don't want weeds. They'll just go out there. So you have a lot of things working together uh, in the area of preparation and process. I, I want to say a couple other things about the weed control. So because we have our fields two years in vegetables and then two years in cover crops, 
we get ready for spring with pretty much all of our fields the fall before or the summer before because we tear up our alfalfa and clover, we put on the compost with subsoil and then we put in the peas, but those fields are ready to go in the spring. They're just ready. If, if, if we have to uh, maybe rotivate, but if it's too wet to subsoil, say the tomato beds, they're already laid out exactly for next year. All the corn fields, that all the fields that are going into sweet corn, every bed is laid out. All the compost is put on. The um, peas were planted. And so I like to think that we do a lot of our spring work the summer and fall before that spring. So no matter how wet, I mean, of course there are limits, but the last two seasons have been just astoundingly, astoundingly wet. They've been horrible. Yeah, like the the kinds of, I mean, since I've been here, you know, my whole life, I, I can say, well, only in... In, um, in the last 50 years, we've had maybe two seasons that wet. And uh, as the one, as, as the one I think, two seasons ago, but this, this 2014 season was very, very wet also. And the thing is, we have all the beds already laid out. They're already spread with compost. We don't have to subsoil them. And we can go in... Even like this year where the fields didn't dry out till uh, two or three weeks after we usually get in. Well, one thing, because we have the RTK, it's it's an amazing thing. The RTK means that last year we went into those uh, fields, we laid them out, and the wheel tracks are still compacted from last year. So you can go down a field that's too muddy, really, but you have to get in because it's late but you're exactly situated on those wheel tracks where you're not compacting the bed and those wheel tracks are holding up your tractor. And if you get off that, I I'd said this spring, I said, let's just go into that bed a little bit and see what happens. Just see how soft that growing part of the bed is compared to this wheel track that was laid down last year, last fall, the tractor would just sink. It suddenly go from like, you know, being held up by the wheel track to being like six or seven inches in that growing part of the bed. So the the point, yeah, I know this is an amazing thing. So when we went to RTK, which is very expensive to do, and you got to have a tractor with a cab, you got to have your, your console protected from the weather and the more modern tractors. I mean, it's the only modern tractor I've ever uh, bought, but I thought I should do it because I had an eye to this RTK because it takes a lot of time to lay out all these fields with flags. And then, and then you don't do it exactly right anyway, and you can't line up on the flags exactly right. So I just thought that was a leap we should take. And I would imagine that every year in increased yields, because of increased timeliness and also because the yields are better because we're not driving on the growing part of the bed at all, that our... Uh, yields have increased by three to five percent. So each year, that increase in yields basically pays for the system every single year. So it's a tremendous payoff. And 
Um, but uh, so anyway, my point is that when we have these fields all ready to go, and you can say it's a luxury to have that much land so you can have half of it out of production in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a luxury, but I consider it a necessity because you can do so much of your spring work in August, the year before. It's a busy time. you got to have the people who can go out and do it, and I do because I've got my guys just dedicated to the machinery and facilities, and then you're ready for really, really, really wet springs. And we had completely full boxes for our first share delivery. That would be usually around the 10th or 12th of June, both seasons. That was when we planned to start, and that's when we started. And it's because we had already done so much of that work ahead of time. It's because we had the RTK and we had fields that we could drive down when they were really... See, fields that are too wet to work, I understand that, but a lot of that has to do with compaction. Right. And if you're not compacting it, you, you have another problem, which is you're working up soil wet, and it's a little weird to do that, but you're not really compacting it. You're not compressing it. And the other thing that we do here is that um, when, when, our, when the surface of our beds is wet and we need to get in, we'll go in there first with a time leader or maybe a chisel plow or maybe the rotavator, and we will just skim it. We will just go down the tiniest little bit into that soil, and so it breaks up that sheen of moisture that's on the top that's preventing it from dry, and suddenly you have vastly more surface space exposed to the wind and the air, and you can get that top three inches to dry out quite fast if you can just break up that, um, you know, that that uh, film of, of moisture that sits on top of the bed. So and again, it's a you way- can do that because you've got the wheel tracks, yeah. right? This is all this is all dependent on having those wheel tracks. Yeah, and, and it's a way, and like I say, you don't have to have RTK to do this. You can flag your beds. You can pretty much, because I don't want it to seem like this is only available, these systems, to someone who has RTK. It's just flagging the beds. You're still going to have your, you know, be basically where your wheels are. You're just going to deviate a little more than you'd like. Uh, but you got to be very, very precise about where your beds are. I mean, years ago before RTK, we did all this, all this previous, this prior work, this this uh, work the year before. I call it spring work, <laughs> the summer before. <laughs> and then, you know, I say we're weeding our carrots the year before. So all of this is about, you know, preparation and knowing what's coming. But uh, we would... We would do it all, it's just we would do it with flats, and so we just couldn't do it as precisely. Well, and you must have had you must have had good tractor operators too. I mean, you're talking about a 500 foot row and having a tolerance of a couple of inches uh, when you're when you're driving down that road towards that flag. You must be. Uh, that's not just everybody that can get on the tractor well, and do that. You know, I've driven tractors since I was nine, and Primo here has driven tractors since he was. Uh, well, he came here when he was about 20, so he's over 20 years now. Maybe he was 17 or 18 when he came. And neither of us could do it or we were satisfied with it. We would, especially if you have a little bit of a slope or there's a little, you know, a little bit of a 
contour and the, and the bed. I feel it's fairly flat, but there's a little bit of slope on them. And if you have that, it creates a kind of a, a curve that you follow. It's very mysterious. Um, so we just weren't satisfied. We would get off by three inches off of those wheel tracks, maybe, or maybe even by four inches sometimes. It just would happen. And no matter how much we were going to absolutely decided to be impeccable, we couldn't do it. So um, now we do it. We don't even have our hands on the steering wheel now. Put our hand on the steering wheel, we'll throw the thing off. That's steers just, itself. That's kind of crazy. And it, it's it's interesting to me, John, because it's not the way we would usually think about a a biodynamic farm running. You know, we haven't talked a lot about about the biodynamic nature of angelic organics, but but it's not uh, you know usually when we think biodynamics, it's it's a lot of small scale. It's very hands on. I'm just curious if that's something that that you've you felt like you needed to reconcile. Um, Steiner is the uh, person who uh, gets biodynamics going, and if you go further outside. Biodynamics in the Steiner's work, you will encounter this, um, these, you'd say, a polarity. Um, and on the one side, you have, um, it's called the Luciferic forces. It's very much about emotions, things like jealousy and, and pride, and, um, or uh, maybe covetousness. And on the other side, you have something that's not that recognized as a, uh, let's say a dark force that be harmonic and harmonic would be the machinery it'd be the computers it would be let's just say things I'm, 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 I'm simplifying here but I'm going somewhere intellectualism or you know dry professorial content um, it's 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 technology and Steiner said you need to be compatible. You need to be able to work with both of these elements, these polarizing elements in a kind of balance. And so technology on a farm, he never recommended that people run away from it, that they had to use it but not be used by it. And so you, we already have tremendous technology. I'm a big fan of technology. I, I have a weakness for it. You know, I love the equipment. I love the... I love it. it. It just really inspires me. And I realize it's technology and it's cold and it's, um, you know, it, it, it can kind of take the warmth out of, of uh, the relationship to the farm in a certain way. Horses would make you feel very, you know, a horse, using horses would be more in the Luciferic realm, the warm loving, very close to the soil. And I don't mean to say that in a pejorative way, but the tractor and you're on that tractor and you're, you're transforming the fields. You're not really touching them personally. And you're, you're sort of the, you know, you're the master, you're the power, you have the power of these fields and it's kind of alienating in a way, but you have to stay balanced and you have to keep reminding yourself of what it is that you're really doing. You're tending the earth, and what's the best way to do that? And I think it's just a fabulous irony that we use this RTK system on a biodynamic farm. 
because you have the sky. Biodynamics, yeah, you, you know, that the ideal biodynamic farm is farming by the heavens and the celestial events. But in our case, what's the most dominant ongoing uh you know, relationship that we have to the sky. It's the satellite that's sending the signal <laughs> to our tractor. And then it's, it's triangulated. So there's another um, transmitter right here on the, on our coolers. So, uh, and then you have better soil, you have better crops, you're more bountiful, you're, um, you know, but you're using this very this very high-end technology, and I, I just think we have to be aware of what we're doing. We have to enter into the really clear picture of what we're doing and not get carried away. I mean, there are people who come here, and they hate the technology, and they're, they're really offended by it. But unless you harness it in a, in a certain way, in a responsible way, and... and uh, um, you will be consumed. It's like your weeds. You're going to be, unless you can get the work done somehow and keep, you got to pay everybody. You got to keep the buildings up. You've got to build new things. You've got to replace the equipment. You've got to live yourself. Everybody else who works here has to live. And how do you make that happen? And if you lean too far towards, well, the, the human is the most fabulous uh, element on the farm. Let's just do as much of this work as we possibly, possibly can with human beings. It's not going to work. You have to harness the technology to take care of the human beings who are working on the farm. But you don't want it to get so far in the other direction that, um, you know, it's, it's completely mechanized and it's like a machine. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, I think, I think it's a really... It, it touches on a really important issue, this this idea of of why we get into farming and what it is that we're accomplishing when we're out there and how we want to feel when we're doing it. And I, I think one of the things that, that I find so interesting about Angelic Organics, and I, I had the opportunity to, to visit your farm. You weren't actually there in in 2009 and, and uh, spent a day with, with your farm manager at the time. And, and it was, you know, everything about the farm, you get this sense that there is a there's a level of of thought and care and intention that goes into not just the action but the systems that uh, that support the action on the farm. And you know, I was I was looking at your website in in preparation for this, and and even that, you know, it's it, it it's expressed everywhere in in what you do, John. And I think it's just so it's so fascinating to me that that you've create. I feel like you've really created this farm as a as a work of art. It's it's an it's an intentional expression in the in the physical world. And and I just you know, I uh, it almost gives me shivers when I think about it because I think it is it it really does get at um the best of farming when you're doing that. Not to not to not to puff you up too much here. Um you're going to have to get a bigger hat or something, but um <laughs> Well, you know, thank it, you. Really, it really does. It really does touch on those on on those things that, that to me is really what it's all about. No, that's beautiful to hear, Chris. And thanks for noticing and acknowledging that. And uh, I have certainly poured myself into this place. Um, I I think people. I I want people to experience beauty and order, and I want people to feel uplifted 
by uh, their encounter with this farm I, in the fields and in the buildings. And uh, I, I, I just think that we can elevate humans and ennoble humans by creating environments where they will feel nurtured and hopefully inspired. And it's a process. I mean, I have, I have a lot of areas on this farm that I, I need to clean up. I can't stand going into a messy closet. And, you know, there's a lot of facilities here. There's like a dozen or 13 buildings and to keep it all in check and to keep it all, you know, in order. And it's, and then when you get into the systems and to keep all of them in order and keep accountabilities in place, it's, it's a tremendous process. And I'm not, I certainly haven't arrived at a point where I feel, um, uh, comfortable with it, even though I know there are a lot of places here, the many places here that I feel are complete or that are adequate, but I, I need, and I, I, I guess it's not just that I want to convey something to others who visit or who work here about loveliness and order and, uh, but I, I need it myself when I go into a room, I want to feel that it's complete and it's ready to be used. I always want that feeling so that I feel like I'm in charge of what I'm up to instead of it's in charge of me. So, uh, but I appreciate it because it's not just in the fields, it's not just in the systems or the equipment, but we try to bring these standards to the buildings and, uh, you know, how they're painted and how they, uh, you know, where the windows are placed and how we're illuminating them with natural light and the views outside the windows. And we try to bring attention to all of these things. And, uh, and it's a big challenge because there's, you know, money's a problem, time's a, time's a problem. And you're always trying to juggle all these things to get the best result. So, John, I've really enjoyed hearing about your farm um, and about the about the the work that you're doing there. So thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, listeners, if, if you don't already know this, you, you can find links to the things that we've mentioned in today's episodes by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com and searching for Peterson. So it's it's P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, Peterson. And, and you'll find uh, the links to some of the machinery that John's mentioned. You'll find a link to Angelic Organics' website, which is just or, angelicorganics.com. But, you know, John talks about these buildings and the window placement and the, and the color and it really is a it's a fantastic website it's it i will say it's my favorite farm website uh uh do take time to go and to go and look at that, and uh, and again, we'll capture all this information, as much of this information as we can, in the show notes and the links for you. So, uh, John, thank you so much for being so generous and with your time and, and your expertise and your experience. This has really been a this has really been great. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, let me say I love talking about weed management. I love it. So it's a big opportunity for me. Maybe sometime we can talk about our fertility program because it's another part of the farm that excites me very much. And last thing I want to say is that I'm really lucky. I'm really fortunate to have a wife, Heidi, who uh, shares my values when it comes to beauty and order and efficiency. And so uh, that makes for an excellent partnership as we move into the future, trying to get things done in the best way possible. 
tremendous harm to them. Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody, for joining me for this show today. Again, you can find links from this show and more notes at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Just search on the on the website, right on the homepage. You can search for Peterson. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice to get new episodes as soon as they're released. And please take the time to leave a rating or review when you're there. It does really make a difference in how many people this show can reach. You can find us on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork. You can sign up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Thank you so much for being a part of our show, and we'll see you next week. Until then, keep the tractor running. Keep the tractor running.